Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. But I could. Listen, you guys, could. if you're if you're gonna start eating salty hot snacks, let me know so that I can start recording before you. Wait, are those one. individually packaged, Cody? Yeah, um, that's wild. What a waste. Well, maybe the idea is uh, maybe the idea is to keep them all fresh rather than like the one I had. It was like one big pack. You unloaded it and then just kind of sat in like a cardboard box yeah. with like a plastic tray. So I, I, I appreciate the ideology behind this, but now I'm kind of looking through each little pack and being like, all right, where's that fucking Carolina Reaper one? Not one oh, so wait, they're they're wrapped in like full tasting groups. No, they're just like they're wrapped in. How many is this? There's like ten per little bag oh, or, or something like that. That's the stupidest possible way they could have done that. Yeah, I I'm, <laughs> I'm throwing them a bone here. I'm get, I'm also giving them free ad space. Yeah, um, the so the whole utility of the product is that you spin the wheel to figure out which bean you get, and then when you open up the little tin, you have to hunt for the bean among like weirdly packaged randomized segments. Right. And this package, very strange. I, what I thought was Carolina Reaper is actually cayenne. So I may just unload all of these uh, on off mic or on you or whatever. Sure. Um, just to, to, to get it over with. But yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's my story. I'm a Carolina I Reaper. Appreciate you, I appreciate you sharing it. Uh, Harry, if I could get you to crank your mic down, my just, just a, a little touch. bit down. Yeah. All right. How am I? I noticed my, minor. Oh, sorry. I'll let you troubleshoot. I was just going to say because I need to keep bringing my volume up and down. When Harry talks, I got to bring oh, it down because okay. it's streaking. And when I, Cody's talking, I got to bring it up. So you know, I honestly don't. I don't change my gain. It's that's, just literally time after time it it changes on its own. I think apparently. the same thing happens to Aaron too. I think it's he's very just, strange. We'll be Does this sound there. better? This sounds much better. Yeah. Okay. Sick. Well, it's cool. probably a good thing, right? Going back to the phrase "no pain, no gain." So you've probably hey. had a pretty good run of it. Uh, my my little waveform thing seems smaller than it normally does. Am I? Do I sound normal? Yeah, Am I normal? You sound normal, to sound normal to me. Am I normal? Okay. I'm normal. I mean, are you normal? Is a big question, but right, right. Mm-hmm. We can't answer that within the scope of this podcast. True. This four-hour-long podcast. That's a good point. It's a good point. That's a Sorry, good point. I'm fin- finishing up a, a fucking plot summary. Aaron's job oh, is not easy. Uh, but thank you yeah, very much, you don't everybody. Have to, don't, let him, yeah. don't let him yeah, hear you say we'll, that. We'll cut this part out. We'll just start from the normal. <laughs> we'll cut this Hit part it. out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Last sentence, not relevant. Uh, this one is, thank you so much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Find us on Twitter at Trilon Podcast. Find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. That's where you can get tickets and showings and other cool stuff that goes on to the trial on. Uh, my name is Jason. I am this country, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, a real Gregory Pecker, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. A lively soul is never stifled by a fart. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And uh, not with us uh, in the booth today is Aaron Grossman. Uh, shame him real quick. If he ever listens to this episode, uh, he will understand. Hey, how many the, episodes the has hatred. he missed now? This, this has got to be like uh, his sixth or something in a row. I want to say in a row. This is only maybe his third. Yeah, but, whatever. Uh, Who's but yeah, it's, it's been spotty. It's been Swiss cheesy. Um, 
but he's been out case, on assignment. The assignment's taking a little bit longer than anticipated. We cannot divulge details as to what that assignment is. Um, he's not entirely to to blame, I think, because I mean, it's I don't know. It's a, he's on assignment. What are you going to do? Right? He's on assignment. It's, we shouldn't have sent him to assassinate so many political officials in, in other one countries. Go, right. Yeah, it should have. We should have just been a one and done, and then maybe have him back. He's not a hit man. He's a hit man. Uh, but you can find him on Twitter at uh, at RB Please. I believe he's on break as he has been for the last like six months yet continuously tweeting without without end uh but in in his stead i'll be putting together the uh the patented aaron grossman summary under exclusive license from ag enterprises uh starting at about four minutes here for my show notes uh today's film is uh was is playing as, as part of a month-long series of the trilon on the films of edward yang this i believe was his fourth it is a brighter summer day it is a 1991 crime drama film written directed and produced by filmmaker Edward Yang. Uh, set in Taipei in 1959, after a civil war uh, sent millions of Chinese, excuse me, mainland Chinese to Taiwan, it tells the story of Sher, an underachieving high school student, and his struggle to balance the expectations of his family and society against his own coming-of-age desires. Uh, Sher is also a member of the Little Park Boys, a street gang, and through chance interactions, he falls in love with Ming, the girlfriend of the Little Park Boys leader. Uh, over the course of the movie, the lens travels between Sher and his day-to-day problems, uh, his excuse me, his parents struggle to provide for their family while being investigated for ties to the Communist Party and mounting street violence amongst the youth of Taiwan. Uh, A Brighter Summer Day is widely considered one of the greatest films of all time and has appeared on multiple lists indicating uh, the same, garnering praise for its depictions of a generation of dislocated Chinese, its languid pace, its, excuse me, very intentional cinematography, and its depictions of class and ethnic tensions between native Chinese, mainland Chinese, and did I say native Chinese? I meant main, native Taiwanese, mainland Chinese, and uh, some Japanese inhabitants of the island as well. Uh, so that played at the Trilon, or is, I think, maybe as of this recording. Yep, still playing through Tuesday. Trilon. So you can actually, you have one more chance to catch it at 7 o'clock tonight if this comes out on Tuesday. I think it will. So get in those show notes. I'll leave a link to where you can buy tickets. Uh, strap in. It's a longie. Uh, Harry, you've seen this a few times, right? You've seen A Brighter Summer Day a few times. Tell me about how this one went down. Yeah, I'm a big Yang stand, so it makes sense. Uh, one thing, very fine summary, Jason. Very well done. Um, just one point of contention. Um, I believe Sir is not actually technically part of the Little Park Boys. He's just close oh, no? to several of the members. A oh. lot like uh, Kendrick Lamar, he just has never been a stranger to the folk, neither, um, <laughs> as in Good Kid, Mad City. A weirdly a weirdly resonant album with this <laughs> particular movie. Um, yeah, I, uh, I love this movie. I think it's kind of a masterpiece. I think it's very challenging as a movie. I think it's kind of deceptively challenging, actually. Um, I was very intimidated by it the first time I saw it. And so I was very, very glad to um, view it again. I think maybe, and we can talk about this, but I think the best way into this movie for, I don't know, listeners and especially um, Americans that don't have a lot of um, knowledge of Taiwanese history or the history of sort of... um, anti-communist flight from China um, to Taiwan. Um, it's it's really important to note that this is actually a really deceptively personal movie for Edward Yang. Um, it's like very much a, um, I think it says in Wikipedia, but this was based on a real incident that happened to, in his community when he was growing up in Taiwan in the 1960s, where um, a character who came to be, um, who Sir is based on murdered his girlfriend in the street after hearing that she had been involved with some other people. Um, To me, this is like a really emotional movie for Yang to sort of like almost exercise this 
event that happened in his past that he's never sort of been able to get over. And it's almost like a forensic directing um experiment in my opinion like it's really very much almost a a, the original title of the movie was um i believe it was youth homicide incident on gulling street so it was supposed to give away the ending to the movie as part of the title of the movie which is kind of a wild thing to think about it makes a lot of sense in the sense in my opinion that this movie is sort of about sociologically deconstructing and um, analyzing how this event came to be, right? So the movie almost functions as a long lead up to the event that that sort of endeavors to depict why something like this happened and how a ostensibly um, good student and good person like Sir could come to end up committing a murder that shocked so many people. Um, And in the process, obviously, this murder comes to stand in for sort of a... um, And Sir himself comes to stand in for a um, very particular sort of psychological, sociological dislocation of the youth in Taiwan following their parents fleeing from China. Um, So that is all to say, like, this is a movie that on first blush can appear kind of dry. Um, I think you described it as languid, Jason, which I agree with, right? Um, It feels very episodic. I always, I think I've said this too many times probably, but it really feels to me like this is Edward Yang's like HBO Max miniseries. Like I think that if if it had come out today, it would have been like eight episodes long, right? Eight episodes, like an hour long piece. Literally just about under four hours. Four hours. And like, to to hear that, like I think that the the like a plot of this movie kicks in around hour three, right? Like, oh yeah, it's that's one of my big talking points. Is like it, it's wild. you don't feel like it's on a narrative track until it's not. Then. It's a strange movie, right? And like that is to say, like I think that that is deliberate. I think that even the oh, very, filming yeah. and the cinematography is um distant, right? And sort of like the the pacing and the sort of like ensemble nature of the cast the way that the the movie chooses where it chooses to spend its time who it chooses to spend its time on it all gives this feeling of this almost dry sociological experiment right which is why i think this movie can be so challenging for people um i think it's it has been and continues to be challenging for me but I guess where I want to start with it, like I said, is like, I think that there is something like really, really personal and really um, tender at the core of this movie um, that that is balanced also with like an incredibly angry and trenchant and urgent point that that Yang is making. Um, And in the process, it ends up being in what is, in my opinion, like legitimately one of the most um, like successful sociological sort of historical breakdowns of a period and a people that I've ever seen depicted in film, right? Like, I think that by the end of this movie, particularly my second time seeing it, I felt like I understood what Yang was trying to say, not only about Sir, and not even only about this period of Taiwan, but sort of like generally what it's like to come of age in a power vacuum and in sort of a place where you are, you feel you are dislocated from your history and your future and how that sort of like ends up leading to the internalization of these evil toxic traits that are sort of like difficult to escape without intervention, 
Um, and so this is a movie that ends up really trenchantly pointing the finger at a bunch of different failures, both interpersonally and systemic, right? Um, and so there's a lot, I guess there's a lot to talk about here. And I'm, I'm really interested in what both of you thought as first time viewers as well. Or I, I believe you've, this was your first time as well, right, Cody? Yeah, yeah, this was, okay, cool. uh, yeah, yeah, first time. I did not see it at the trial on because I psyched myself out with the runtime and I figured, hey, because you're um, cowards. No, I get it. It's fine. No, I, 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 did, I did the exact same thing. Uh, but, I mean, I guess it's as good a place as any, Cody, if you want to no, take it's next. No, it's a tough movie to see in theaters. Yeah, I, uh, I was... I was no, 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 you stake your claim on cowards. We're going to have to roll with it. Hopefully that doesn't come to bite you in the ass later. Uh, sorry, I cut you off, Jason. No, I was going to say, Cody, if you just want to take over from there, like you and I, I'm assuming, had similar-ish experiences. We watched it home, watched it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did it go down? Yeah, uh, watched it on Criterion. Um, or did you do with it? Or you maybe did you do the thing that you do, Jason? You like downloaded a torrent that had like the it's the one with the Swedish su- subs that are like hard coded. Yeah, on it. That was my experience in college with a lot of movies. <laughs> Shout out to, <laughs> was to it Swedish subs. Was it specifically Swedish subtitles? Yeah, something like that. I feel like that's it, hilarious. Every, every every so often you'd come across a movie that was hard to find, and you found a really good copy, but for some reason it was from the like the the cedar or like the the account that hard code sweeter yeah, subs on I, I got a lot of those on speed.cd the site i used to use to pirate so much Ooh, yeah. uh we'll link those in the show notes no we won't um uh pay us that money no i uh i really i really like this movie um i loved my experience watching it quite a bit um i was uh talking with harry a little bit yesterday this is I've only seen a few films from edward yang's filmography this is not my favorite of his i think at this point um spoilers for like the coming weeks maybe but still like an all-time film and viewing experience i was looking at um i was just kind of poking around not doing any actual like historical or contextual research that might actually benefit my understanding of this but going to like this movie's imdb page and seeing it has like a high enough rating to be in the top whatever like 250 but it's just like fifteen thousand people have logged um scores for this movie so it's like criminally underseen is is kind of the idea um and maybe like the time and placeness of it and the length of it are are potentially um roadblocks for people getting into it but even from the get-go uh like especially you know prick up your ears if you're listening to this and you for some reason have not watched the movie for some reason listening to this when you haven't watched the movie yet i should say that like it gives a couple sentences of um like context based on the time of just like hey government uprising this is how it pertains to this particular this particular um individual and this particular group of people that you will be you'll have a, a particular vested interest in over the course of the next four hours of just like there's a lot of instability seeping in with how we perceive ourselves and our communities and our identities. And so that fuels a lot of what like you'll see, like what unfolds is sort of a a reflection of that and like a a meditation on that. And it's like, great. I would love more just like spoon feed me a little because I'm a big dummy in 2023, but I I wish, I don't know. I I feel like we don't get that uh, as often um, when we maybe should have of just like, this is a big this is a big sweeping epic of like very intimate personal proportions of like the the fallout of this particular place in history um and that really resonated with me i really latched onto that um again without maybe being able to understand all of it but um the uh in my head i divided this movie into just halves i think it's um at the like first half really in love with um like really top tier stuff and then uh and then 
honey died and for whatever reason I found myself less engaged or not not like less engaged but I just like I don't he, such a magnetic presence maybe we'll talk about him maybe we'll talk about a lot of things oh, yeah. just for four hours Ooh, that's a good content. point um but that that just served just like incidentally served as a, a certain like dividing point in the movie where and I don't know the it not to say that the second half is is worse by any means it was just a different sort of experience but um yeah I no I I I don't know. I really liked it. I like watch it. It's again, it's an epic. It's um, I think it's one that's warranted because I'm, but also I'm a big supper, uh, big supper. I did have a big supper for what it's worth. <laughs> I had Panda Express. I'm a big sucker for just like the, the sort of life and personal experience content, like the little moments that comprise a life and an understanding and getting four hours of it was, was really thrilling. And I mm-hmm. actually, Hey, I feel like I learned something maybe by the end of this, which Whoa. can't, can't always say from for, a movie. It helps that it's or anything like else. maybe one of the most beautiful movies ever shot too. Maybe uh, it certainly doesn't can't hurt. hurt. <laughs> right. Let's, certainly let's, not. Let's talk about that. You guys have really dug in though, to some of the structural stuff that I like found most I don't know. By times most frustrating and most compelling in this movie, this was my first, not my first Edward Yang, my third. I've seen Taipei Story and uh, Terrorizers before this. Both, I think I prefer probably to this movie, but they're both fucking real. Like, all these movies are really fucking good. Um, The whole, like, the concept of it, excuse me, the the structural nature of it being, like, I love, Cody, that you brought up the, uh, like, the pretext that, I think it might be interstitials. Oh, and he's popping up on Coca-Cola, for those of you not on camera. Um, he's going to be glugging while I'm, I don't think, I'm, slug, I'm, uh, I'm sure that's not coming through the, the microphone, but Oh, sorry. No, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm also battling some kind of uh, head cold. So my apologies for all these. No, you got sexy podcaster voice. Mm, it's great. Keep yeah, going. Bat, bat Mariner on. Uh, <laughs> just told me that I'm disconnected. So you guys let me know if I actually. Yeah, I, I disconnected I for a second too. too. Everybody's good. Woohoo. I think we're, we're back good. in Zencaster. Uh, but the narrative pull <clears throat> starts with like. I mean, you you know that it's a period piece uh, from just generally set design and the fact that they're listening to this old-timey transistor radio, but then a, an interstitial screen appears that explains, you know, like in 1949, Civil War, uh, you know, uh, people flee, fled the um, uh, victorious party and uh, left uh, and, you know, relocated, and they're having, like, a lot of them have trouble uh, integrating, a lot of them have trouble building new lives, and a lot of the youths, because of that sort of contextless you know, baseless, I won't say existence, but like the lack of understanding of who they are form street gangs. They join, you know, the ne'er-do-wells of the world and thus violence is a problem on the streets of Taipei. Uh, and I guess the way that it sets it up is not like I was, I was appreciative for the background, for the context, but then it spends most of the movie, probably that first, I would say comfortably two hours, not talking really about that directly, more like through the lens of those characters of sure and of Ming and of their parents and of honey and cat and everybody else speaking about like, I guess, building examples like showing rather than telling what is happening. Like we don't see anything that's not on, not in Taipei. We don't get like shots of the larger landscape. We don't really get inside of government buildings where they're discussing the whole, like we get clips and pieces here from the newspaper and from the radio. Uh, But I think it's just a much smarter choice to like focus on each of these individual people as people for, I mean, it just blown out to the scope of this movie. It's for two hours in another movie. It'd be 30, 25 minutes, but here it's two hours that they're going to spend really focusing on that, really building those characters. I think that's incredibly smart. I think that it really does make that it has that uncomfortable effect. Like you were saying, Cody of like once honey dies, once some of that narrative tension of like the warring, um, 
uh, the warring gangs and sort of where sure fits into that picture and Ming's like, you know, loyalty to, to honey and all those things. Like some of that tension tends to like, and just seep out at that moment, uh, because it has sort of then built that, like, I guess that was the narrative thread if there was one to me. Uh, and then once that's gone, it's like, okay, we're left with sort of what we were at the beginning where we're just sort of focusing on these individual problems that seem isolated, but are clearly connected by societal instance and by, you know, systemic uh, issues on, on the Island and, you know, generally in, in the world at large, I found even those moments of, uh, where we are just not spending time exp like exploring or explaining the larger implications of any of these problems. We've really shrunk it down to the very, very personal, like the day to day, the uh, little antics that they get into, the fact that they can't, that sure can't adjust to night school, that he's having trouble in every, you know, every imaginable class. Um, that like, I found it ironic that this movie starts in like essentially the most the first important scene starts in the middle of the night and we don't actually see daytime until i don't know a few good minutes in maybe 20 minutes in and then it's finally day and we i don't know just the context in which it brings all these things up is not what i expected it i expected like because I, again I'm, I'm a little stupid baby with baby boy brain i expected some kind of like context some kind of setup that was going to be like more clearly defining who you know each of these characters are what their role is in the world and i think the fact that it doesn't do that is very intentional i think the fact like the, the purpose of not giving us that the purpose of exploring the people through their problems and through the context they exist in is more important to them than or excuse me more important to the movie than um really explaining like where these people fit in to the entire like scope of the story we're about to tell you because the scope of the story we're about to tell you isn't really the point per se. I think that plays to Harry's point about um, the fact that it is like a deeply personal story for Edward Yang, that it was like, it's, I, I love the term in, or forensic or investigative about like something that he just saw happen by happens or knew of happening by happenstance. I think that's like, it sort of sings with the making of the movie. I will say I did not find it as accessible as you seemed to find it, Cody. Uh, it feel like, I, I I like I do look down the barrel of a four hour movie and I say this is not getting done in one sitting for me personally. It's tough, but I did find it like worth coming back to. I wasn't sure if it would like keep that momentum going through like the midway point of the movie, but I found myself hitting two hours thinking, OK, I've, I, I can make it the rest. It was it's actually like it got it got there once it built those characters. I really wanted to see where they ended up. I had no idea how this movie ends. I. Did not know if it's alternate title. So knowing that somebody does That's actually good. Get I'm glad. <laughs> stabbed and killed in the middle of Guling Street is uh, is quite, I guess, it was a shock. This movie with a Japanese Tonto that was Japan found with, in the attic of a Japanese person who was fleeing from Taiwan after former, World War Two. Of yeah. a former was it? No, it was just Ma who lived in the house of a former general, right? I don't know. I if, think a lot of them did. Were they? Like, I, th yeah, I, think I think that's that like idea. that was one of yeah. the big things is that like a bunch of those houses were just Japanese houses left over from when the Japanese had to flee from it's, um, Formosa, I guess at that yeah. time, right? Ma's like house may have just had like a lot of shit compared yeah, to the like rest. A, yeah, a yeah, shotgun and a katana. And I don't know. It, it's like all those little things spun into that milieu of like youths and coming of age and gangs and, you know, young love and not really understanding anything about the world and being put into one of the most confusing, one of the most, uh, you know, non, I don't know, one of the least like baseline, least stable life experiences you can maybe have trying to relocate in a completely new part of the world is just it's disorienting at times, but very it's, uh, 
It's a um I'm gonna say it, so everybody prep your bingo cards. This is a it's a deeply hauntological movie, right? Like I think oh, that boy. that uh there's a lot to talk about. I actually what I really want to do is get to Honey because I think that I really like him as sort of a linchpin to discuss this movie's themes around. But I should characterize a little bit, like I think it really this really saying to me this time around the particularities of what it means for these people to have fleed from the communist uprising in China. Um, these are people who are very who were one wealthy in mainland China. That's largely probably landowners. That's why they're fleeing from Mao and from the communist uprising, because that was a brutal crackdown on landlords. Um, and uh, like two, these are people who have suffered a proud people who have suffered a world historical defeat, right? Whose lives are going to be irrevocably changed by the fact that something they never thought would happen happened, right? Which is that the, um, the political pendulum swung in their lifetimes fully away from the, um, the history that they had, the power that they enjoyed, the identities that they had for themselves as landed gentry, basically, or at least wealthy landowners who, uh, had power and status in China to these people who are now living in exile and working class for the first time, right? They, like these are people who um, largely, I mean, like not necessarily all of them, right? But they are people who at least had reason to to flee from communist China. In Sir's case, it was because he, his father was a government official, but um, pre, pre-communist China government officials had sort of a similar position, not as wealthy, of course. Um, and so like these are people who are living in this, this time of like deep um, fear and unknowing about what happens next, right? Because they've been literally dislocated from their futures, from their entire histories. And so like we pick up in this place where like, and and darkness is such a beautiful metaphor for this, right? This idea that like, these are people now who thought they understood the way that their lives were always going to be, and are now forced to confront the fact that that is not going to be the way it is. And this is visited primarily on their children who didn't really have a full understanding of their own history and their own sort of like socio-political standing, but feel the absence anyway, right? Like a phantom pain. So like we get all of these kids who are sort of like dislocated from themselves because they don't understand who they are, right? It's like we're these Chinese kids living in exile in Taiwan who sort of like don't have any future picked out for us because our families don't even really know where our money's going to come from. We're just sort of like living in exile, maybe temporarily, maybe permanently. And sort of like in the absence of like all of this, like they have this great need to establish themselves and this great need to protect the sort of values and virtues that they came up with, which are like, and this is where the movie becomes so deeply resonant for me. There are these kind of toxic masculine ideas of pride, right? Like this, this like chest beating that because these characters are walking wounded, basically, right? Their pride has been existentially threatened. They become even as children, these people who are obsessed with status, obsessed with protecting and preserving their own um, territories, their own identities. And like, it's very clear, at least from the, the movie's curious lens, why that's happening, right? It's because they have this sort of like 
deep existential fear of being uprooted again. And so like they, they default to these gangs. Um, and that brings me around to the point I want to make about Honey, who is sort of like the first to successfully accomplish this, right? Like I, I love his presence in the first half of this movie because he's almost like Colonel Kurtz or something in Heart of Darkness, right? Where it's like, he's not in the movie he has one scene, right? Like that the actual character honey has one scene. It's an extended scene and he's murdered at the end of it. Spoilers. Right. But he's mentioned like half a dozen times before this as this character who he's in jail. Right. But when he comes back, it's like the King returns, right? It's like, everything's going to be okay. He's going to get with Ming again. The little park boys whose power has been in decline, who are sort of on their back foot, they're finally going to be able to reassert themselves. And it's because this tough guy who actually has been able to um, sort of like force an identity for himself is going to return. And I love the way that, that, um, that um, honey sort of like he he comes to be conflated with all of this other symbolism, right? Like especially Western symbolism, right? Like these characters are listening to Western music. They're listening to Elvis Presley. They're uh, wielding Japanese weapons, the sort of like symbols of their former conquerors turned defeated, um, conquered. And Sonny sort of represents all of this, right? He's sort of like this idea. He's the symbol for if I'm only manly enough, if I'm only cool enough, if I'm only tough enough to sort of like force an identity for myself, even in this this uh, state of world historical psychological dislocation, I'll be able to take something back. Right. And so like all of these kids are trying to be honey and then the king does return and he's immediately slain. Right. What did you think about honey, um, Cody? I think that it is a fitting obsession for Winnie the Pooh. Now I know what he's been talking about all these years because boy, howdy. Um, yeah, I think it's, this movie does, uh, indeed this movie does, uh, it does a lot of things that I love, but one thing in particular, it's, it's the mark of a, like, not just a good screenplay, but a well-written character. When you see, when a character comes up in conversation and, like you feel their presence before they ever show up on Hell screen. Yeah. Um, and like the first time he appears, killer. you don't even see his face for like the first seven shots. You just see his back and you're like, wait a minute, is that who I think it is? Like I was like hype, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh my God, I think that's honey. Right. I think that's, and I think all this speaks to, and I'll, I'll ramp up a little bit. I think all of this speaks to why the first half of the film maybe just worked a little bit better for me because the the culmination of everything and then distilling it through Honey's appearance and then subsequent disappearance was just really, really effective. Um, everything that, you know, the context that you provided, Harry, and characterized super well, like all of this is going on. And I, and I think it was gestured at already by one or both of you, but the fact that, you know, with our, our, our hero of the story, um, you know, Sir is, uh, he's in night school and it's this idea that you can see plain as day, or I guess plain as night that like, how do you expect any of these kids to focus on school when like the, when uh, there's, there's a whole big world to explore specifically, there's, you know, in the emergence of all this, there are competing gangs. Um, there are, and also as we find out later in the, or like eventually later in the film, like the threat of secret police wafting over everything. There's just like, once, once you get, once one domino falls, it's, it's so much easier for another dom domino to fall. And it just, I don't know, it's the thing that I feel like, um, I mean, it's not just this country's, uh, uh, or the country of the film that we're talking about today, but I mean, um, 
other countries as well, perhaps our own, of just like you like slide down the hole a little bit and then it's just a, a further and further descent. And that's, I don't know, it, you again, you see that pretty clearly in, in this is as well um, as like, again, how can you expect anybody to, to focus on on school with, with all of these? It's, you know, we're in a type of world where the phrase, um, you know, we have all the time in the world means two different things between two different scenes that sort of like, um, I, I don't know, the, the extremes of both emotions, you're like with somebody you love or like you're, you're being tortured by um, government or not, I guess not physically, you're, you're being kept uh, against your will by government agents. Um, like it's, it's a world of, of dualities. You're either like rolling with a gang or you're like living concurrently with the rest of society, which seems to be like kind of aware of um, you know, the, the, these groups as existence, but still just, I don't know, like uh, so much of that was so, was shown visually really well. And, um, I guess just while I'm thinking about it, like having all of these, um, be showcased visually with, um, you know, like kids, kids rolling with gangs, um, ex- uh, those opening sequences where we're exploring different, um, architecture, different structures, uh, the again with me being pretty new to Yang's filmography, but um, seeing it in Yi Yi as well as uh, A Brighter Summer Day, just like people framed very small, like with smallly, very small within. They're within, dwarfed like, by their environment. Right? Thank you. An infinite, and rather than me trying to invent a word that doesn't exist, um, <laughs> that was way better. Um, but yeah, like it, he, these characters being dwarfed by the big spaces around them, just. Uh, again like it's it's very very plain that the the type of ideology we're we're operating within and the the sort of futility against it but so that by the time that honey makes his way back into the motion picture um he's there's a certain understanding that he presents of like he's sort of above the need for competing for turf like all that you know he can he he's been able to kind of um settle his accounts his accounts just being like ties between people like he has a very like a really nice scene with sir and he kind of says on the surface like i'm i'm above certain things um like i don't need to settle this and then he you the, the next night he like very much needs to to settle this it's that that sort of like burn fast die young um uh, energy that uh foreshadows uh ends up foreshadowing kind of how uh the latter half of this movie plays out for for sir but um yeah i don't know that's i i, I feel like i i sloppily kind of built up to it but there is like a very distinct culmination of of things in in play there that um really just i don't know that makes honey such a fascinating like um fulcrum for this movie to hinge upon yeah i really like let's um i i think you're you're getting at something there i really love the way that you characterize the night in the first half because i think that we've been talking a lot about the sociological and political implications of this movie it's it's really important to note that like this is a coming of age story right like this is a story about teenagers in fact like Edward Yang very pointedly used non-professional actors and worked with them for a year to get these performances out of them before he started shooting. And it shows, right? Like, I think that one of the big wild things about this movie is that especially for like Western uh, tropes or Western style of filmmaking, I kept being like, these characters look so fucking young. Right, like, like, especially Sir and especially Ming. It's like they look like children, Cat, dude. In this movie, yeah, Cat right. Was I mean, Cat looks like he's yeah. like six years old, right? Right. Um, and like, I think that's so different from like you. I, 
this is a bad example, but like Tokyo Drift or something, right? Where it's like, oh, everybody in high school is 35 years old. Um, and like, but uh, so I really love and think, well, first of all, like the first couple scenes of this movie that take place at night are some of my favorite night scenes in cinema history, I think. Um, and it does set up both halves of this movie really well, which is that there is the existential fear and the precarity that these characters are subjected to. And the way that those things in, in almost just like an almost animalistic understanding of that precarity is creating this tension that's just in the air. But coinciding with that, that tension and all of this sort of like very weighted history is also like the, the simplicity of youth, right? And coming of age. And like when Sir goes to night school, it's exciting. Right. Like in addition to everything else that's happening in this movie, the, the night scenes are really exciting and fun because it feels like anything could happen. Right. Like like teenagers feel it's like they're all running around in the dark. Like there there seem to be no like all of the authority is um, totally outstripped. Right. Like, sir, very like uh, symbolically steals a flashlight in like his big first introduction. And so like, it's really important to consider both halves of this, right? That like, for some of these people, we are reaching them at sort of the end of their history. But for Sir, and for the people that that we actually follow in this movie, this is only the beginning, right? This is their coming of age moment. And so there's this sort of like very volatile, catalytic, com like, um, the chemical reaction that is occurring in this movie when those two things meet, right? This idea that like, okay, like all of this socioeconomic precarity is unfolding and it is affecting the kids, but they're also just kids, right? Like they're also kids that are coming of age that want whirlwind romances, that want to puff up their chests and have rivalries and sort of like, I think both of those things are really important to understanding Sir, who is a character who is sort of like, our POV character and also like this, the movie's idea is that it's sort of a battle for his soul throughout, right? Like, and, and I love the irony that, that they position night school and darkness itself as the sort of like temptations that are calling, uh, sir to the, the wrong side, right? When in fact, the end of the movie, in my opinion, really pulls the rug out from under all of that, right? And reveals that actually like the reason why sir became the way he became was not because he had been so tempted by the dark, but was in fact because he had internalized the mentality that had been taught to him by the quote-unquote light, right? By his parents and by the people he looked up to. Um, that's why he has the like insanely regressive gender politics that he has, for instance. But I'm, I'm skipping ahead, but that is just to say like, I think that like, it's really important to understand both halves of what this movie is doing in coordination with each other. Um, and I think that one big way that it does this is it creates honey right who is this sort of like he's this symbolic figure for everybody as sort of like their best last hope because he represents both a way out of the precarity and the sort of like lack of answers that that the last generation have totally failed right like i think a big part of this is that Sir feels like and has been to a large extent totally failed by his institutions, right? His parents have no answer for him. They're like trying to escape from the secret police and failing on their own. They're living in exile. He's like, what does my future look like? And so all of these kids feel this way. But Honey represents this alternative, right? And it's an alternative not just out of precarity, but it's a it's a way for them to sort of establish their own identities, as these sort of like tough guys who don't take shit from anybody. Um, except unfortunately, as it's, as it's demonstrated almost immediately that 
identity itself gets co-opted by all of this like really ugly stuff that comes like in part symbolically from the West, right? Like the Elvis Presley and all of these songs and the, and uh, um, Honey's like very Western Navy uniform and these ideas about protecting the homeland and protecting our own turf. Um, and so there is this sort of sense in which like both halves, the light and the dark are pushing Sir and, and one, like he couldn't have ended up where he does without both. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It does. And I'm wondering, it is then the death of honey, like the death of that ideal that they are, are working to like that sort of masculine westernized idea. Is it, is it just like now after in the wake of honey, in the wake of this thing that at least for better or worse catalyzed and sort of concentrated their, uh, I guess their attempts to define themselves and identify as something with that gone. Is that just like now they're left to the wind again? Is, yeah, that's is, a really is that... good question. I think it's it's a, it's a sort of existential defeat that echoes that of their parents, right? Where it was sort of like this idea, this promise that Honey represented, it ends up being an emperor has no clothes situation. Hmm. Um, and But instead of sort of like making them uh, lose all hope, they just double down on the idea of Honey, right? Like even after Honey is dead, even after it's revealed that he's not there, he sort of becomes like a prayer, for them almost mm. we're like sir and to a lesser extent ma and to an even greater extent cat they all want to be the new honey right like they all want to step in where the the king has fallen and that's what sir is like very pointedly trying to make himself in the second half of the movie to the point where he he makes and this is like this is the the sort of like focal point of his really disgusting gender politics but like he fully makes ming symbolic of that right it's like well if i can be as cool as honey if i can be sort of in control of my destiny as much as honey is then ming will be with me and she'll stop hmm. sort of like flitting around she'll stop sort of like uh looking for better opportunities wherever opportunities prevent themselves i can become her only hope Right. And that sort of like becomes this sort of like very disgusting, regressive idea that like, well, if I can model myself in the shape of honey, in the shape of what I consider to be the upright, upstanding, um, like masculine man, a la Elvis Presley, a la like all of these like Western symbols, um, then I can make Ming into the westernized version of a housewife or like the the sort of pure symbol of my own mastery over self and over environment and ming is over here like wait like a that's not what i want at all uh b like this sort of purity madonna horror complex binary that you've received is not like it, it actually fundamentally dehumanizes me um and like c and and this is the part that that sir can't stand right like you're not that guy you'll never be that guy Honey wasn't that guy. That guy doesn't actually exist. It's not actually possible for an individual to, through his own identity, sort of master the world to the point where he can change it all on his own, right? That's what Honey was trying to do. That's what Sir was trying to do. When Ming tells him that he can't do that, he can't stand it, right? He has to instead eliminate the source of his discontent, the, the sort of refutation of self that she comes to represent to him. Is it, before I I think really just only just add a little bit of color to that um because I I think you said that really well that the comment when the name of the movie I think is first said it's in the latter half and 
somebody says, I think it's like overheard, but like you can read the subtitles. It's within like a group of people, like uh, the family or someone else. They say, I could swear he says a brighter summer day, Mm -hmm. like very low key, but also with me being interested in reading too far into things, the sort of that line, that like fragment of a lyric um, being representative of just like the tricks memory like our memories play on us or like our misperceptions um or complete misreadings of our own like past memories upbringings like those sorts of situations um and that that that, like incidentally informed how i read uh, a lot of especially the latter half of the movie um but yeah i mean i I think ultimately the it, it wasn't if I'm kind of doubling or walking back how I how I previously articulated my perception of the latter half, because I think what happened to kind of get back to like your original question, Jason, of like what sort of what died with Honey, if anything. And I think the fact that Honey was was killed by Shandong and then the subsequent scenes unfold and it's Shandong and the Little Park Boys massacring each other. Uh, and they just like the, the, those groups more or less evaporate. And then we proceed like the, I don't know, the rest of the, the movement of the movie unfolds and just kind of goes in, in a, in a different direction, the sort of futility and, um, fleeting nature of, of the world. And so many of these things, especially on a micro level, especially when you're dealing with, um, gangs in this particular, uh, era, especially when you're talking about youth and the sort of short sightedness or misinterpretation of these characters in the moment. Cause at that point, I, I think it's, I don't know. I sort of had the sense that the writing was on the wall and that like with, with honey out of the way, with these formalized groups out of the way, something new but similar will take that place and that's that's what got the latter half to be so progressively painful to watch because try as you might try as they might to fit some different mold like their their per perception of kind of like what needs to happen next oh like clearly the answer is somebody else needs to become honey somebody else needs to like take up the mantle and like be the manifestation of these ideas into into one person. Somebody else needs to to hoist this upon their shoulders and you know like be the man, you know, puff out their chest, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, especially it, getting into the last twenty thirty minutes, it just it, it's so bleak and like very yeah. painful um, compared to the the low key sort of hype nature of seeing Honey and uh, like watching him be uh, in his sort of worldliness. Um, take a certain perspective and then that perspective is gone um, just like so many others uh, before his and since his has have just been wiped uh, wiped clean from the earth never to, to be seen again and and only mimicked but you know um, imperfectly uh, it's well painful. and it's it's important to note that like even honey wasn't honey right like the, right, the emperor exactly. definitely had no clothes the problem is that and this is the a problem that sort of like reflects the existential fear and, and angst of their parents um, they can't accept that like to to accept that there is no honey is to accept that there is no future, right? That there is no hope. That this thing that they're striving for is is never was never there in the first place. Instead, they're always going to look for this increasingly vague, increasingly illusionary, brighter summer day, right? I'm really glad you brought up that uh, that title because it's a. She is actually correct. That is actually the lyric of the Elvis song. But this is um, a a Taiwanese woman. Uh, 
Sir's older sister, who is transliterating lyrics from Are You Lonesome Tonight, the Elvis Presley song for Cat, because Cat so desperately wants to sing Elvis songs, even though he's repeatedly told he doesn't have the voice for it. So we get this guy, these people who are desperate to become something, who are desperate to achieve an image of themselves, right? As this sort of like stoic, badass, rugged individualist. And again, this is why I think this movie works so well for like Western audiences, um, because they're kind of like pursuing a version of the American dream, right? Or a version of the capitalist dream. This idea that like, oh, they can be so tough and so badass that they can kind of make justice happen themselves they can sort of force not only like themselves to achieve a certain existential position and identity for themselves but in fact they can force others to be that too he can make ming into what he wants her to be he can make jade into what he wants her to be he can make the world into what he wants it to be because he's just that powerful right he's tetsuo or whatever (laughs) you want um And I really love the way that this movie portrays that every time this sort of dream or promise is wrested from them, they have to double down out of fear, right? Like, I think that the the slaughter of the um, 217 boys is a really good example of this because it's, it's such an ignoble thing, right? Like, throughout this movie, we have seen these sort of, like, very, like, macho standoffs between territory, these fistfights between 14-year-old gangs. In this one, during a typhoon, they take a bunch of Japanese weapons, which again, the like the symbolism of Japan in this movie shouldn't be overlooked, and they break into the 217 gang's headquarters and slaughter them in the dark with with swords, right? And it's it's awful to like watch and awful to participate in, and they don't puff out their chests. This is just like a like desperate revenge killing for honey, although nobody ever really frames it that way. They just sort of frame it as something that they're almost too scared not to do, right? Because to not do this would to be accept- to accept that this whole sort of like game that they've been playing with the Little Park Boys and the 217 Boys, it isn't going anywhere. It, it doesn't actually mean anything for them, and it doesn't actually give them the sort of brighter summer day future that they've been looking for. And so instead, like, the the more you feel the sort of walls uh, narrowing in on you, the the harder these characters feel they have no choice but to double down on pursuing that dream at whatever cost. Until the sort of, uh, in my opinion, the the um, kettle boils over with what Sir does to Ming at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's it's amid all of that like search for self, search for identity, and like the sort of. Idols and monoliths that they put up, clearly being like the biggest one of them being Honey. Um, that it like, I think most about how this movie we've already talked about how it looks, and we've like intimated a couple of the shots that appear in this. Uh, in my recollection of Terrorizers and Taipei Story, it's a lot less pronounced, but in this movie, it is really on point with the, and I, I'm assuming it was his cinematographers, but as directed by Edward Yang, that typical like putting like the important parts of a frame through a door or some other portal or behind something that's actually going to obscure the point of the scene for a little bit until some motion happens until something very natural happens. Somebody decides to leave the room or somebody crosses the room and you see the other half of it passing through that happens literally too too many times for me to remember in this movie because it's four hours long, but it makes me think of that whole, like the communication that these characters have and sort of like that obscured meaning nearly constant it's like it's that feed like on a micro scale of what i was saying before about the 
uh, larger like structure of it where it's not really meeting out pieces of the plot in a really like timely manner in a way that you're going to be able to like super follow. And I mean, maybe you will, maybe you have a better, stronger mind than I do listener, but I, I don't, uh, to be able to like really follow the breadcrumbs there and instead just spend time with the loaf a little bit, just like learning it that like that very much echoes to me what we're saying here about the that general search for something that like that self that maybe never was or that maybe yeah. never will be like it's that question about like you say the brighter summer day what are these kids going to have as you know first or i guess roughly first generation uh you know uh, uh taiwanese right like they're not going to i mean uh, not not native taiwanese obviously but you know what i'm saying like as as the first generation of children of a, a family that's that fled mainland China what does this mean for them what like sort of cells will they find on the other side of this and I think the way that it's shot the way that it's uh, lit the whole concept of not being able to see in the dark the whole uh, his sure's whole thing about turning the lights on and off and all the kids get shots for their blurry eyes for night school is just like these are coping mechanisms for like a problem that cannot be um they cannot just be fix that can like it that is endemic to the situation they're in they're searching for meaning they're searching for themselves they're searching for something to become and it's just not if it's ever going to be there if, it, if it's ever there at all it's not easy to find and i guess in like the most cinema guy way i can imagine saying it like it is when i will see those shots happening that that thought triggers in my mind of like the why is there a wall literally i'm just looking at a wall with potentially somebody in the room next door and the door is open and then somebody moves in a frame and says something and and that's over the course of two or three minutes and that's when my mind starts to thinking like why is this the right way to tell that story because it felt right it feels right in the large scope of things why was that the right way you know yeah i i remember the first time i saw this movie my big takeaway was that like i was like oh edward yang does with lighting what ozu did with like rooms it's it's like that hmm. good, right? It's like holy shit! Like you will never think about lighting the same way after you see this movie. The way that it like is its own character that resides in every scene and is almost menacing at times, even as it is exciting. Like I think that the way that light evolves in this movie from something that is ostensibly sort of the righteous path, right? This idea that like oh sir, like if you stick with the books, like, like in the first scene, he's going to night school and it's supposed to be this entrance to the underworld, right? It's sort of like his first step into this scary new world that he uh, might be seduced by. Um, and then by the end of the movie, like, like he kills Ming at dusk, right? Like as the sun is going down and uh, a light takes on this entirely different idea. It's, it's this idea of like, of like you had said, like this broken promise or this even worse, this vague promise, this promise that you can't even really make out because there is no plan for these people, right? It's like, like I said, like we are living in post end of history here. It's like what was supposed to be is not going to happen. What, what else will happen? No one knows, right? Like there, there is no future for these kids. They have to make their own and it's, it's frightening, right? Um, I think that that's what the like the whole like adjusting to the light thing is and um it's it's interesting right because I think that like this movie especially on second watch because of all of the um techniques you've been talking about Jason it feels so intimate and so um emotional and so uh like personal to me despite how detached it can feel at the same time and i just think it like it rests in this idea this like incredibly potent 
encapsulation of what it means to be this sort of teenager, which is just that like their pain is so raw in this movie, right? Like you can really feel that like Sir and Cat and um even Ming, but but it, Ming is very different, obviously, but like and Ma, they're just not who they want to be, right? It's like they don't really know what they want. They don't really know what it mm-hmm. means to be a good person. They don't really know what that looks like. They just know that there is a version of that that exists somewhere and that it's not who they are. And they just can't figure out how to get there. And it's like, it's such a like empathetic and, and brutal like pain at the heart of this movie. Um, And I think that like, this is why I say that like, this is so descriptivist and so um investigative because I think that like, Yang does such a great job of unpacking that without sort of sympathizing with Sir in the end, right? Like, I think that in addition to everything else, this is also a very angry movie because it like, it does end up going to a place where it's like, hey, like, Sir is a monster by the end of this movie because he internalized so much of what we taught him, right? And and because of the like the distance between what we taught him to be and what he felt he had to be was this idea that like he was able to sort of like become this terrible misogynist because he he was able to um, externalize his own self-hatred and his own inadequacies onto Ming, right? Like Ming became this thing that was like, oh, you're a symbol of everything that's wrong with the world. And if I were only strong enough, I would be able to fix you. And then we would all live happily ever, but I can't do that. And so I have to like stop you, right? Like that's what it means to me to be like a good person. And it's like worth noting, right? That like, that really awful scene after he kills her is like, he didn't even really like he, she wasn't even a person to him by then. Right. Like after she bleeds out, he's like, well, get up Ming. Because to him, it's like, well, I couldn't, somebody like me couldn't have possibly killed a person like Ming because Ming's not a person. Right. She's like this symbol of like womanhood and sort of like of his reward for being a good enough person. Uh, And it's, it's horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. It is. It's like you want to feel that there's like regret in there because you've seen in many movies where there's where somebody kills somebody and expresses regret over it or just doesn't really know what they did. You want to read that. But in our conversation over the course of our conversation here, it's coming clear to me that like it's not true like regret. It's confusion. It's uh, resentment. It's like probably a little bit of despising the person that he just killed deeply right but uh, but right. it's because he despises himself right he's a, right. i mean he's a, he's a child but like after well, they arrest him he's like ming is mine right yeah. like she's mine he he has this possession and again it's that it's that possession born of precarity right born mm-hmm. of the idea that like these characters are so so afraid that everything is going to be taken from them that they become obsessed with taking things themselves or yes. possessing things owning things and especially when like he is surrounded, right? Like he has this rival in the end of the movie uh, in ma the rich kid and ma seems to possess easily everything that he can't Right. Like it, he sort of becomes this like existential threat to Sir, where it's and it, but but Sir sees those threats everywhere. Right. Like everybody is just a little bit better than he is. Everybody is just a little bit like has something that he doesn't have and he needs to take it from them to have it. And like that ultimately culminates where it does. Mm-hmm. And in like, I don't know, it's just I keep coming back to the like the fact that in between those big plot points and i'm thinking maybe three or four over the course of the entire movie we really are left to like stew with those 
you know, interpret dynamics between characters and interpret what's going on inside of each character's head. Sure, being the main character, but most other characters getting about as much interiority as he. I mean, like maybe Ma and some of the other side characters, maybe not. But like we spend a lot of time with a lot of these characters, a lot more time with the parents than I thought we would. Um, And it really is like we are left then to in the absence of plot points that sort of like these characters get to. I don't know, define themselves off of. We just see some like recurring events. We see so, like a lot of. Uh, I, I really thought a lot when I was thinking about this point about the scene. Uh, geez, I forget exactly what it comes before and after, but uh, sure, his mom and dad are on the bus and they're talking about, uh, you know, whether or not they'll have enough money to buy him glasses and like whether or not she'll get her. I think it's her teaching license renewed or something like that. And they're talking about income and providing and stuff. And it's like, this is this, uh, this is the lens through which we've had to watch most of the movie is, and I'm not saying had as in like, it's a punishment, but this is what we have. Like, this is our only foothold for understanding what's actually going on and what the movie's trying to do and say is looking at the little bitty problems that face each single person every single day and saying, okay, what are these, what is their condition adding to that? What is like the fact that sure is trying to like, maybe not trying, but he's expected to perform at school and to like contribute to his friend group and sort of pursue what he wants in a girl. And, you know, we know that that's not really an altruistic goal. He's not really in it for like young love. Obviously he's looking to like a masculine domination, right? But each character, and we could probably go on as like it, uh, identifying each one, but each character has those little uh, things, like the little things that they want to be versus the things that they are. And these problems are what's standing between them. And they're just trying to cope with the problems and the, in, the like the, the systemic things that are actually holding them back, like the problems that are above their problems seem completely insurmountable compared to the fact that I just don't have enough money to buy my son glasses. I, you know, you know, my other son sold my watch, uh, and you know, and the kid came over and broke the radio. And it's just like, man, you you get a real sense. And this is how I keep thinking back, Harry. Now, to what you were saying about it being an incredibly personal story is like nobody thinks about the details of that life unless they're trying to put together a very specific set of circumstances that would create a mindset like the one that sure has by the end of the movie that would create a person who can like do right. that and feel that way. It's like every single detail in this movie culminates in what sir did. Right. And that, and that to me is very much the idea and kind of why it needs to be four hours long too. Right. Like, like Yang is like fully, he's so curious and so interested in sort of exploring. And I would say it's like, I think of this movie as like, I think I mentioned, it's like an exorcism, right? It's like you can almost feel the way in which like Edward Yang, like in Taiwan, read this news story and maybe even like knew the kid or something. And he was just like, what the fuck happened? And like was kind of haunted by that for years and just like trying to like make sense of it here. And he's trying to make sense of it the same way the boys in this movie are trying to make sense of like their own lives, right? And I really love the way you described that uh, Jason, because like once you start to feel it that way, you can see the way in which this movie operates like a pressure cooker that's like just constantly turning up the heat, right? It because like every one of those little obstacles these characters face, it becomes this sort of pattern of precarity that sort of becomes psychologically um, exhausting. Right. Where it's like that you can tell these characters are starting to think like, well, if I was actually like who I think I am, I wouldn't have to deal with this stuff. Right. Or like you can see them sort of questioning who they are and as a result becoming more afraid and more um, like angry about 
and and more entitlement is a weird word for it right but but sort of like the it's an entitlement born of a fear of loss right it's like you can see it there's this incredible sequence where um like in parallel uh sir's dad is being interrogated by the secret police well sir is sort of like dealing with things at school right and like this character arc almost plays out in the background where Sir's dad becomes more and more authoritarian and more sort of angry and like demanding of Sir to study. He, um, really like brutally beats sir's older brother when he thinks that sir stole his or he thinks that the brother stole his watch it turns out of course that sir stole the watch instead um but like these these characters the tension just keeps ratcheting up and ratcheting up and like in in the absence of sort of like relief they just have to keep reaching for the the brass ring Right. Like there, there's no other alternative but to double down into the mentality that they taught would would sort of like um, redeem them or would sort of like rescue them from this terror when, in fact, like that is what is generating the um, or a, a part of what is generating the strife in the first place. But there is there's no other answer. Right. Because of this pride and because of this sort of need to remain human. Um, and so. It, it ultimately, it all culminates where exactly about where you would see it culminate, right? Which is that the um, the least protected members of society uh, pay the price, right? Mm. Like, I think, I think it's important to note that, like, Ming, uh, for it as beautiful as she is and as sort of, like, what she represents to other people, she's also, like, a poor child of a single woman, right? It's, like, she mm-hmm. she's, like, this character who, like, precarity is more real for her than anybody else. Like she ends up living with Ma and Ma takes advantage of her basically. Um, and she feels like she can't, I mean, she, she all but says at one point, like when, when guys come on to me, like I'm scared to say no, she, Mm. she basically tries to tell sir that, right? Like she has an affair with a grown man because the grown man is taking care of her mom after her mom collapses, basically from stress. She, she and her mom end up moving into Ma's estate so that her mom can be uh, a maid. And then Ma starts coming onto her while she's living in his house. So like, again, huge power differentials there. Um, And who does Sir blame for all of this? (laughs) Obviously Ming, right? Like obviously it's her fault, not the fault of like all of these other people who are acting exactly the way that he acts. Um, And so like you, you can just see how like these people need their, anger and their angst and their resentment to have somewhere to go mm-hmm. and so they punch down at the only people who can't fight them back right who can't threaten them this is not where i thought you were going to go with the um with the ozu comparison but like the idea that are there are all these like little problems that appear little but like when you put them in context or like oh yeah i can see where that comes from i could see how a person could be that way you do that thing i've only seen one ozu film to date and it was good morning and it's like not a movie of strife at all but we really do just float between people and their problems and their lives and the things that like distress them, the things that bring them, you know, various emotions. And then we put together a picture of the place of the time of the people through those. And it's such an effective way of doing that. And like I said, that that's been done on other scales, but blowing it out to this scale, like you said, I think makes it more effective because it's like, you really start to think about the origins of some of these things, the impacts that they have when you get to sit with them. And it's not just like a line or a quick scene. It's like, this is the point of 35 full minutes of the movie is worrying about like 
whether or not he's going to, you know, be able to achieve in school before he's supposed to graduate or whatever. You know, it's it's like yeah. focusing that hard and that nitty gritty on it that is pretty effective. And it's like it's like a fucking sociology course, you know? It like fully trains you to like understand the complexities of what created the circumstance that unfolds at the end of this movie, right? Like he does such an incredible job of like being like scholarly in the way that he examines every angle of this thing and all without losing the sort of emotional thematic truth at the heart of it, right? Like it, it manages to do all that while also being a story that's like deeply about people, like th- that, that is very interested in humans and in understanding like interiority and emotional complexities. Um, and he does all of that and he arrives at this very literary, um, pointed and in in my opinion opinionated answer right like i think that this movie understands what happened to sir and has a point of view on it right like this is not descriptivist in the sense that it's like well like this could not have been prevented or like this is just how it happened right it's and like that was very, the way it was this was right there, it's there very interested in sort of like in, on the streets of taipei and this right. has been one <laughs> yeah it's not naked naked taipei <laughs> um uh but uh it does all of that and it like legitimately, in my opinion, it communicates something that's almost too profound to sort of like sum up, right? Like I think that there is an answer to this, but I, I am loath or I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to like sum it up. I wouldn't try to say, well, Edward mm. Yang thinks the reason why Sir committed this murder at the end is because this, this, and this. It's sort of like this is just what happens when you give characters these great expectations for what they are and who they should be and who they deserve to be. And at the same time, you don't provide them with anything like the opportunity to actually do that. Right. Is that it ends up creating this terrible situation, these terrible situations where these characters become angry, violent versions of themselves and they take out their aggressions on the people who can't defend themselves. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, it really like it's um, it feels true, right? Like capital T true in a big way about like an observation of humanity, um, yeah. not only in a time and place, but just sort of like this is like a thing that is true and that happens to people. Um, yeah. And I think that's a pretty incredible fucking accomplishment. I think so, too. This is. um I thought about this during a movie, but uh, reading recommendation, uh, Temple of the Golden Pavilion, uh, very much. I wondered if you were going to bring up that specific book, Jason, because very, it, it seems like Sir should like, <laughs> or maybe should absolutely not read that. But <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know if that would help. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, there's a lot to say about that book and it won't really, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to pick up on all of it, but definitely the, the uh, intention there, I think was very similar uh, of like the sort of uh, considering the context of of it but like focusing on one person's perspective of it all and like focusing on what they're constant what's constantly going through their head yeah. and i think mishima was just like f- obsessed to the to a like a deleterious point about what would lead a person to burn down a gen- you know generations old temple well and and it's that's Japan. such a trenchant uh like comparison to make to this movie in particular because it's like mishima like the ultimate sort of um like heriophant for japanese nationalism mm. and this sort of like like end point of a type of death drive masculinity um and this movie's relationship to japan is so similar right it's yeah. like the, these characters like they become like faux samurai when they like want to drive home 
this point, right? Like these are characters who are like Mishima characters, especially Sir by the end of this movie, right? Like he's this character who sort of like feels he has no choice but to internalize this incredibly like toxic uh, like masculine traditionalism. Um, and so like, and, and he does that, he finds that traditionalism through this relationship to nationalism, right? To both like Japanese and Chinese nationalism. So like, it's totally a Mishima type plot. I, I do wonder, maybe I'll do some Googling to find out if Edward Yang had read, excuse me, had read uh, Temple of the Golden Pavilion or was just, was at least familiar with the, cause there are a lot of just parallels uh, here and yeah. there. Continuously. Oh, through. let me see. Brighter Summer Day, directed by Edward Yang, written by. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Paul <Japanese> Schrader. Plug. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, that is where we'll. Uh, I'll do my Googling, but in the meantime, I want to open up the door one last time for any final thoughts before we get to the, the penultimate uh, bit of our re- re- recurring segment of our podcast. Anything else we wanted to offload before getting to the visuals and the uh, fun games? I'll save uh, just a little bit of Googling, and maybe I'll came across this in the uh, the Wikipedia.org article for A Brighter Summer Day uh, under the production section. Uh, and I quote, not a, a quote from the article, not from an actual person. Yang used uh, Goodfellas as the model of a gangster. Oh, thank film, God. Uh, as a gangster, of a gangster movie, excuse me. Um, should have said film. Yeah, but, the first time know. I saw that, I was like, okay. And I didn't really get it. But like now, on my second viewing, and maybe this is a little bit too like, jerk off but like there is a lot to say about like the way that precarity works in both of those movies yeah. right like mm-hmm. like good like all the good fellows are also just like insanely afraid of like having to be slaves to the capitalist machine and like right. that's why they do what they do yeah and like you know like good fellows like every other um scorsese gangster motion picture uh brighter summer day really uh glamorizes the the gangster <laughs> lifestyle uh the the mafiosos yeah. <laughs> Uh, of the world um really makes you think uh you know maybe, maybe this film ain't so great after all so i'm gonna take <laughs> my uh, my media literacy and, uh, edward and go yang back on canceled <laughs> yeah cha-ching just kidding edward obviously. yang uh dead since 06 or whatever he's finally canceled God, we got him, fucking guys. rest in peace that's yeah. my hauntology is the world where edward yang stayed alive and kept making movies bummer Bummer, but we get to see a few more of his movies here at the Trilon. Check out Trilon.org for a full list of those films. Uh, four of them in total are going to be playing. Yee Yee is, but I believe next. I don't know if we're going to cover that or not. I think I might have just broken my own no, we are. rule about the po- this podcast. I think it's, you guys, um, moved, I think it's you guys t- moved it so that I could participate in it, which I appreciate so much. You guys are so nice to me. Sometimes yeah, I think I think I think Taipei stories next and yes for the oh, yeah. 18th time right we're we're covering all the we're, we're going to be a yang gang for the entirety of of that uh, series I have this little no more questions of uh, is the are the trial of boys going to going to cover all the all the yang movies but, because we are yeah you start believing they, in the yang gang you're in one the audience <laughs> demands to know <laughs> the audience demands to know and I demand to know what gif we should use along with this episode uh, when it goes out on Twitter, um, Harry, I know that you have a lot to say about how this movie looks. Did you mm. write down any specific ones that you think could look great alongside this? I didn't take a timestamp, unfortunately. Sorry. Um, oh, it's but... okay. I just need to scrub through 
thousands and thousands <laughs> yeah, and thousands yeah, you're of shots. That, that's why I streamed the movie at home because I was like, you <laughs> uh, know what? I need to take uh, timestamps for Jason for the GIF segment. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's, that's this what movie does yeah. contain what I think is maybe my favorite, one of my favorite shots of all time, where Sir and Ming are talking um, for one of the first times outside of the doctor's office, I believe. And while they're having a conversation, the camera pans away from them and shows their shadows on like a white door. Oh yeah, and so, a reflection like, of their shadows. I remember on, that just one. on wood on a door, and like I fully like I film bro freak the fuck out when I see that. I'm like, how did Edward Yang even pull off that fucking shot? It's insane, and like, uh, totally like thematically resonant when you consider that like neither of those people are considering each other as people. They have sort of like fully become these sort of like syllabsop sol- wow um solipsistic symbols to each other right like ming is just sort of this symbol of what uh sir can be if he can only attain her uh and ming just sort of like sees her as like the latest he sees him in like the latest of a line of people that want to like take advantage of her uh, and understands what the game is um yeah that's an incredible incredible shot um also uh when sir this is an obvious one but when sir uses the baseball bat to to destroy the light bulb when he's attacking the principal with the baseball bat um that's that's a great shot too. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Cody famous, uh, noticer of things. Codicers, noticers, there you go. uh, at, 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 or around 10, 15, 10 minutes, 15 seconds, maybe give or take a couple seconds. Um, I, I mean, I was looking for stuff early because I was like, Hmm, what, what one shot is going to be the thesis, the singular visual thesis for this entire four hour long movie. Um, and I landed upon one. It actually kind of worked out pretty well. The, um, it's when sir is, uh, off screen. This is when they're in school. It's not nighttime. Um, and I can't remember if it was during or before or after when they're going to, um, like uh, I think it's Sly that they're like like Sly's cornered up in the other builders like they're out and about on on school grounds is is what I'm getting at. He's in a classroom flicking the light switch on and off, and then you see a figure uh, exit the classroom. He's still not like clearly you can't like see him in in his entirety. You can kind of see like the figure, but um, yeah, and that ended up for a number of reasons uh, playing out pretty well. The rest of the movie, just, yeah, like kind of going forward. I do need, however, uh, just really quick, get a special shout out, two hours, four minutes, 40 seconds, that um, the image of the basketball coming out of the darkness. Um, oh, uh, man, that's so sick. That's that, such a good that, shot. Rock. I wrote that it's, one down, too. Yeah, it's, uh, it is probably perfect loopable, um, but that's simply extra credit in the fight for my soul, um, much as this movie was a fight for I'm Sir's need soul. Every extra cent I can get. Uh, i've got two more uh which is just the they're obvious ones but like when uh sir shines the light on the two the couple that's making out that turns out to be ming and ma i believe but that's sort of like one of the big mysteries of the movie that's a great one um and then like maybe some of the best acting ever when ming is just crying in front of that camera and then stops crying and starts laughing um unbelievable shot there uh kind of like one of the great visual metaphors of the entire movie so that would be another really good one yeah, she uh, gets a screen test and a chance to perform in a movie. Finally, a chance for that young woman to put on a performance. I mean, she's been looking for this all her life, right? Um, mine would have to be like, you've already mentioned a few of them. The the one on the door, uh, the basketball out of the dark. Both of those, I think, be fucking incredible. Um, and obviously, I've seen the one of Ming crying in front of the camera before, so we'll see. But uh, when 
it's right at the just before the climax. I believe he has maybe he's already stolen or he's just about to go steal Cat's knife. But sure ends up at the movie set and sort of berates the director. But before he sees the director, he sits down in his chair and there's like, I don't know, a bucket of something smoking or steaming next to him, like leftover cigarette butts or whatever. And he just like puts his head back and just in the most relaxed, like exhausted way, just like sits there completely still for a few seconds. And the smoke is just slowly. And, you know, the light's coming in from the left. Again, it's another it's like it's fun inversion of the shots we've been seeing the whole time where there's not a door in front of the frame, per se, but doors are like parallel to the shot so you're seeing yeah. like a little bit Fucking of the like robert zemeckis ass like lighting it's incredible <laughs> it's, it's a really good shot uh so i'll end up making all these i'm having trouble currently i think uh edward yang's ghost is really preventing me from downloading this illegally but we'll see uh, i might be able to torrent it and get a hold of some some of these gifts and i'll try to make them put them together and uh we can put them out with the episode uh thank you guys for helping me uh good grief get a gif um we have one more segment to our show and i would uh, thank you for helping me ring it in <gasps> jason it is the segment we like to call <gasps> i know you cody's? just took a breath oh, cody's no no <laughs> you want to do that again i would thank you <gasps> cody's, cody's no wow thank you gentlemen that introduction <laughs> sure passed its transfer exams Whoa! You know what I'm saying, uh, the film we discussed today uh, for for this week, that film being a brighter summer day, comes in at just about four hours. So this week we will be discussing some other things that take four hours with a segment I like to call "Our Four Hours." And so that's our. I'm gesturing, dear listener, our four hours. Uh, I will present. Uh, I, I spent way too much time trying to think of good wordplay for this. Um, so I went with that. And there are four it's hours. It's good, Cody. Going to love them regardless. Uh, thank you. I will present some prompts relating to things that take four hours to do. After reading each prompt, I will ask y'all in reverse alphabetical by first name order to respond. So Jason, then Harry, if I have that logic correct, you'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, Trivia Mafia rules do apply here. So use your noodles, not your Google Googles with that. Let's j- 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 jump in first. Let's go for a drive. Yeah, uh, depending on traffic and time of day, if you take 94 East from Minneapolis, after about four hours, you'll end up in a little place called Madison, Wisconsin. Ooh, so pee, poop, beer, and cheese. That's right. Uh, you'll end up in pee, pee, poo, poo, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm going to give the names of three notable famous people. My question for you, which of the following of these three individuals, which one? of the following of these three individuals did not grow up in Madison, Wisconsin. So I'll give you three. They are as follows. A, Liberace, the pianist and entertainer. B, Georgia O'Keeffe, noted artist. C, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, noted architect. So which of those three individuals, famousest of famous people, did not grow up in Madison, Wisconsin, Jason? I'm going to say Georgia O'Keeffe. Going with Georgia O'Keeffe, locking that in. And Harry, what's your guess? Um, I feel like Georgia O'Keeffe is a good answer. Um, I'll go with Frank Lloyd Wright, I think. Frank Lloyd Wright, he thinks. Uh, while the other two were born, uh, born in and or raised in Madison, Wisconsin, Liberace was oh more of goodness. a he was more of a Milwaukee guy. Um, pretty Dang. close. But, was he really um, Milwaukee? Yeah, yeah, wow. he still reeked of cheese. 
um, <laughs> just you know the the other town over, sort of so to speak. Um, they're not like right next to each other. I think it's you know an hour, a couple hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're distinct. Yeah, they're not um, the same place. Everybody, God damn it! They're not. They're not yeah, fucking flyover. Maybe, maybe the yeah, last the person down. you would expect to come from Wisconsin, which is I why was, I, yeah, yeah, which is I why I didn't choose it. It's like it was already like the Wikipedia articles for famous people from both of those cities, Madison and Milwaukee, are like longer than I thought they would be. A um, little bit of shade to Wisconsin because yeah. you know, um, but like a lot of, I mean, there are some like famous other like athletes and politicians or it's like i don't know nobody knows who these people are and then landing upon like fucking liberace is yeah it's is like, like if elton I'm, john was from fargo or some shit right I, i'm sifting the the mud and shit in my little sifters and i see a little gem of a nugget it's like holy shit liberace let's go um, isn't yeah fucking willem defoe is from appleton wisconsin yeah and that's the that's other thing rad, is yeah. that yeah, is that there are a lot of um, yeah, like fame. Yeah, Willem Dafoe is, uh, I think, like a classic. To, uh, I think Chris Farley as well, um, who is actually in the Wikipedia article for Madison, even though he was born in one of the other like thousands of like smaller. It seems sounds weird to call them suburbs, but just imagine, like yeah, there's like a couple towns over, like smaller towns over. Rather. Imagine finding Willem Dafoe's face in Appleton, Wisconsin. That's fucking crazy to me. You know he's got to have a statue or some shit, right? Or something, right? It's like you mean you're telling me he didn't just. Just walk out of like a renaissance painting from like the old world europe <laughs> you're he's telling me somebody like a... didn't run over a man and what got up was willing to <laughs> one day he's kind of like a dried apple of a, of a person i mean that in a good way apples are awesome you are i'm, right. so, I'm, I'm something picturing of a wisconsinite a myself <laughs> something of a cheese head and we are something of a question into this game no points given out quite yet still very much anybody's game uh, is a city in Wisconsin, but it is very much still anybody's game. Uh, next, you know what else you can watch in four hours? Uh, a little movie called Gone with the Wind. Maybe you've heard of it, uh, which has a nearly identical runtime to A Brighter Summer Day. The film adaptation of Gone with the Wind stars Vivian Lee and Clark Gable, with Gable being part of a previous episode, It Happened One Night, how tall was Clark Gable, Jason? Ah, you thought I wasn't going to ah. do it because it wasn't question number one, Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, how tall was Clark Gable? Um, I think I think Clark Gable was 5'9". Damn it, that's exactly what I was going to really? guess. Wow. He has short king energy, kind of, doesn't he? He kind of does. Are you going to go with 5'9"? I'll Solidarity? go with 5'10". All right, 5'10". The curse of going first. Sorry, Jason. Uh... Going off a few sources on the internet, Clark Gable was reportedly six feet one inch. Six not feet. A, not a short king at all. Apologies yeah, yeah. to Clark Gable. That seems wrong. Did did they make rulers differently back then or something? Yeah, shit? They, people weren't tall back then. <laughs> they weren't that I mean, tall. That, that's one hundred percent what my reaction was when I said it was like six one. Nobody was taller than like five foot six until like nineteen sixty. Yeah, I, exactly. I gotta be real. I think I'm. I think I trust the vibe more than I trust science on this one. <laughs> Mm, yeah well it is what it is um r.i.p short tall short king clark gable um schrodinger short king that's exactly right uh harry who got a point that turn uh so the score sitting at one zero we do have uh three more questions to go so buckle the fuck up uh, by question three though you may find you're now a little exhausted you may even have a headache after all these hours spent hours upon hours well if you're taking meds be sure to take a minimum recommended four hours between doses of acetaminophen acetaminophen um ibuprofen you know you know what it is uh 
Medicines. Oh damn! You have to big, you big have to words. spend four hours between shots of uh what it says on, between what shots it's, of it's what it says on the <laughs> well, bottle. Well, I do inject it. Yeah, it's, um, I snort it. Uh, my question for you: In what year was the first, uh, we'll say, version of acetaminophen introduced into medical practice? What year was that first the the first beta release of acetaminophen <laughs> uh, released upon the masses, Jason? Uh, not a multiple choice. I just have to pick one year. I, I got to pick a year. Mm, I'm going to say 1938. 1938. Harry? I agree with you. Just because like for whatever reason, it's just super obvious to me that those motherfuckers in World War One did not have ibuprofen. Seems impossible. There's just no way. Um, I'm going to go a little bit later, though, I guess. I'll go 1951. All right. 1951. Um it's a little bit of a, a windup of an answer, and I, I may mispronounce something, just putting that out there. But according to the internet, acetanilide, which is the chemical base of acetaminophen, was the first aniline derivative found to possess analgesic as well as antipyretic properties. You taking notes? <laughs> and was quickly introduced into medical practice under the name of antifebrin in the year 1886. Whoa, the order? Wow. Eight, uh, exact, the very same. Why were those guys always so upset? Yeah. I thought, I thought <laughs> they had analgesics right there. Yeah. yeah. Antipyretic properties. Yeah. It's, they it they been were a in the perfect drug. time in history. They had painkillers and no internet. They You're had telling no me those motherfuckers in Deadwood had <laughs> ibuprofen the whole time? What were you're they so telling, upset you're about? Me Ian McShane <laughs> passed kidney stones without it? Without it? No, oh, I don't know nothing about all that. Well, all we got is antifebrin. It's like, <laughs> buddy, you got a big storm coming. Uh, Hey, look at that. It's all tied up. 1-1 as we move into question four, which for question four, we really, we need to implore us to watch and rewatch and rewatch again the classic miniseries from 2014, Ping Pong the Animation, Mm. uh, which comes in in its entirety just past the four hour mark. Um, Pivoting away from that semi entirely. This is another question that deals in years, but in what year did ping pong become an Olympic sport? Jason. Oh my God! I'm gonna gun, gunshot it. Uh, I have no idea if the if the Olympics. Bear in mind, on time is a flat circle. Nineteen seventy-one seems like a cool time for it. To oh become my a God! Thing. Wait, did you? Because I'm pretty sure didn't Nixon do this? Because like he? that's a real that's oh. a really good guess if that's a shot in the dark there, Jason. Mm, that was a shot in the dark. Um, I'm oh, gonna go locked, with locked in. uh 1969. Nice. Nice. 1960 is is that the bit like if it and if 69 shows up in any number it does it warrant the I don't make the, the rules nice, bud. I'm asking I've, what the rules are. I'm 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 not a prescriptivist about it, but okay. I will say I've seen it applied in a lot of any time the string of 6 and 9 are next to each other. I would just yeah. say do you think it's nice, you know? That's that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Aye, that's an uncomfortable sounding question that I'm going to tiptoe around. Uh no, I've I've definitely held back in situations because I've been saving myself for just the the direct uh un unfiltered 69 but i'll keep this in mind uh we went to the moon in 1969 shout outs nice. to that fact uh hashtag nice ping pong or table tennis or if you per uh if you prefer whiff waff has been an olympic sport since the year 1988 1988 right, nixon nixon just improved chinese relations by attending a ping pong tournament in china i think i think i got it mixed up uh, if you said something, Jason, you are on mute. 
or you were muted, or oh, you moved your a lips. Bum. That's there right. We go. Fuck that. Now guy. we're talking. Didn't bring. What the fuck did he give us? Didn't even give us fucking ping pong. That's uh, true. Word on the street is he's not a crook. Uh, I heard that from mm. somewhere, somebody. Uh, the score is two to one in favor of Jason as we head into our fifth and final question. And it, you know, it is on second thought. I don't. I don't know why I thought the American president would be in charge of instating <laughs> Olympic sports. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> it's a little Western centric of me. I apologize, everyone. If there's one thing I've learned, um, especially in the few instances where I am on the other side through like a dance detour or something, it's just the brain does weird, fucked up things when you're answering hard questions on the spot. Again, I'm. I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, whatever sorts of logic makes sense to you all as we approach the end of this, and since we have made it to the end. I, I think we ought to celebrate, right? We, we should celebrate. And what better way to celebrate than to compete, uh, rather complete. We're going to complete a, uh, a power hour and we're going to complete it four times. So for those who don't know, a power hour is an activity in which you consume one shot's worth of beer every minute for an hour. Uh, and at least if you're like me and my circles, that process is usually uh, accompanied by a fun YouTube playlist with 90 songs that change every minute to cue when beer should be drank. It's really, really good and fun. Um, but one other thing we should talk about alongside this, because spoilers, this question's a, a bit of a windup, uh, also is uh, is blood alcohol content, or BAC. And what that is, is it's a, a measurement of alcohol into, uh, intoxication, rather, that's expressed as mass of alcohol per volume of blood. So if you're, if you're following me, for example, a BAC of 0.10 AKA one tenth of 1%, uh, 0.10 by volume means that there is 0. 0.10 grams of alcohol for every 100 milliliter of blood. So a BAC of 0. 0.0 is stone cold sober. In different countries, the maximum permitted BAC when driving, uh, you know, while you're driving ranges from about 0. 0.02 to 0. 0.08. Anything above 0. 0.08 is considered impaired. And once you get into like 0. 0.40 territory, you're, uh, well, you're, it's potentially it's fatal. So, out, yeah, yeah, it's it, you're in a, you're in a tough spot, uh, as the science says. Uh, yep, the science calls you're, that category really up against it half now, man, but, yeah. half alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Uh, so, just bearing all that context in mind, uh, snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. I'm gearing up for a four-hour continuous power hour. I will be taking shots of hams every minute on the minute until the four hours are up. Assuming for the sake of this exercise that I complete the four-hour power hour and don't miss a single drink, what will my BAC be by the end of it? The closest guess will get three points, and the other guess will get one point. So my BAC level following a four-hour continuous power hour, specifically drinking hams. Uh, what do you think about this, Jason? Yeah, I think this is way too math. I got a D plus in college algebra, which was really just high school math. I fucking hey, me sucked. too. <laughs> hey, uh, birds of a feather. Unfortunately I, for for you all, I uh, I got straight A's in my <laughs> in my third major of calculating BACs. It's over <laughs> for you, fools. <laughs> uh, much like somebody whose blood alcohol content is point four zero, I am in a tough spot. I'm gonna go. <laughs> Uh, just a random guess, 0. 0.24. And they're going to say that you are super drunk, which is what they call that in Michigan, maybe Minnesota as well. 
Mm, okay, point two four. Uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, the laws of Michigan have the ter- have the phrase "super drunk" sprinkled throughout um, for both like alcohol related articles and non. Um, Michigan's a fun place. Uh, Harry, what do you think about this? Well, you're drinking ham, so it would be zero point zero zero. Got him, oh, Jason. Can we mute him <laughs> yeah. for the rest of the? You are disqualified. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go He's with. Good um, <laughs> I'm gonna go with point uh, three eight. I think you would be Ooh, you would be real some, fucked up. Well, I mean, like you said, like a shot a minute of hams for four hours. Yeah, you would be. That's uh, near lethal. I would imagine. Zero point three eight. Don't appreciate the ham slander. Hams is. Uh, I don't know if we know this. This man's slamming hams and not in the good way. Yeah, uh, we want to be slamming hams in the good way. Uh, and I will just say before just to get it out of the way now as before i read this this answer thank you for your guesses and thank you for um for these our four hours Uh, accounting for my body weight uh my current body weight and my body's perceived ability to absorb alcohol over time taking into consideration uh the greatest beer in the world ham's america classic premium lager beer the greatest of them all comes with a 4.7 percent abv that's alcohol by volume recognizing that I will be drinking, uh, lost my spot, that I'll be drinking for four hours, that each minute of those four hours will be accompanied by an approximately 1.5 fluid ounce drink of 4.7% ABV beer. And that in total, I will touch my lips to my shot glass, open wide and tilt my head way back 240 times in as many minutes. My estimated blood alcohol content by the end of a four hour power hour will be 0.68. Yeah, <laughs> I knew I was under. Almost nice, dude. You just gotta uh, drink a little bit more. And no, get there. no, no, no. Almost nice. I'm about to dance detour. Subtract okay, so, points. Yeah, he's, uh, he's he's really spreading it pretty thin now. Yeah. Um. Uh, speaking of uh, be, uh, spreading things and being on thin ice, uh, adding some some context to my situation, this puts me well above 0.08, which means I'm legally drunk in all 50 states. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I may be suffering from any and or all of the following symptoms. Complete unconsciousness, depressed or abolished reflexes, uh, subnormal body temperature, incontinence, which <laughs> do you have a sound? Do you want to bring back that sound effect? Yeah, there it is. Uh, incontinence, uh, impairment of circulation and respiration, onset of coma and possible death due to respiratory arrest, just to name a few. So what that means is three points for Harry for that question, which brings him to four, uh, which leads Jason's three, including the one that he got for that last question. Very tight race. Harry comes out on top, uh, all ham slander aside. Harry, would you like to take this moment to pop off a little bit? Uh, you know, I think I'm just going to celebrate with a real beer. Thanks very much after we're done with this recording. That's right. Listeners, I did it again. See, but he's got I ham slandered again. He's got a hams in his hand. He's keeping up appearances for the listeners, but for us, he knows. He's got oh, a hams. Sure. He's clutching a 32-ounce <laughs> hams. go into my closet and, and open up a secret compartment that's just full of hams. I can't get <laughs> enough of this stuff. I was going to say, it's it's very beneficial for me and my platform that the, the super producer of this podcast is also a hams fan and can edit in any sort of trickery he wants uh to you know tiptoe around this line. you gave me the you gave me the floor to pop off this is my prerogative as the champ <laughs> my name is yeah. harry mackin and i steal hams <laughs> and i love the beer hams <laughs> oh and i love uh these games you make us play at the end of every episode cody always wonderful uh the further they stretch the more fun they are to 
try and figure out. I don't think I was going to be able to predict like any of those fucking things. These games you make us play, it sounds like a fucking Pusher T song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fucking uh, Jigsaw, baby. <laughs> check out Trilon.org for more movies in this series. Uh, coming up, we have Taipei Story, Yee Yee, and That Day on the Beach, all through the month of March 2023. I've got a link in the show notes, but uh, hey, you still have one last chance if you're listening to this on day of release to see a brighter summer day. It's also on the Criterion channel, as are a few others. Uh, please go check it out. Uh, it's good to see these movies coming through the trilon and being played at the, in Minneapolis. Uh, and we'd love to encourage them to get a little bit. I, uh, my roommate, Seth, watched a bunch of these movies um, some time ago, and we watched Terrorizers. Wonderful movie, but it has no like widely available Blu-ray release. So it was like 40, 50 bucks to get a decent Blu-ray. What I'm trying to say is go see them because hopefully that means more interest. That means more widespread attention on some of these movies and more availability over time. Uh, as is the real end goal of any given movie that you see at the trial on. If this doesn't appeal to you, if you've waited through all of this and just hated the movie, hated the discussion, still check out the trial on's website because there's a bunch of other cool shit, way more accessible, way more quote unquote fun stuff to check out. Uh, but you'll find it all at trialon.org, which you'll find on Twitter uh, is some times occasionally they'll put out like one image with no link uh, about a movie that's coming up. I mean, whoever is doing that really needs to figure that shit out. But you can find us on Twitter at Trial of Podcast. You can find them at Trial on Cinema. We post memes and shit. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendo Fist. Thank you for listening. I love that you brought up that. Tra- and by the way, I. I have like a, a distinct tolerance for that behavior of tweeting out an image and like no other information about because like I'm generally aware of the trial on schedule. Obviously, like outside residents and observers mm-hmm. and uh, non participants might have trouble with it, but it does remind me of what Mubi does uh, from time to time. I haven't seen it as much lately. Maybe I've just like tuned it out, but they'll do the cool thing where they'll tweet um, the uh, like uh, like a one to two minute preview of a movie, like one of the movies of the day. And just like let it run and like it'll be, you know, an engaging part of the movie that'll get people to like want to watch it more. But the title of the movie is like visible for maybe five seconds on screen. And it's it's different each time. Like sometimes it's at the very beginning, sometimes at the very end, leading into like only on movie or like anywhere in between. Um, And I want to do everything possible like other than clicking the link that says watch this on movie because i just want to like i just i just want some consistency and usually it's movie and i'm or like usually with movie i'm not as acutely aware of like what what their what their database is like so all that is mm-hmm. to say uh i've been cody narvis and you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh you know what i'll uh i'll create the third path here i like it when the trilon just tweets out posters and i like the movie uh inconsistency i think that that clarity must fall in the face of art uh always which is why i'm saying Hmm. there's a guy who doesn't like hams so tread cautiously dear listener trilon said take a look y'all image underscore three six seven eight dot jpg Harry, was your Twitter handle embedded in that gibberish? Is that Who knows? The idea? Was that the joke? That was the, oh, that the, was the bit, knows? yeah. I can't even interpret it, yeah. Well, in that case, have a kiss, score a miss, hanky-panky time. Zhang Fuzong, Zhang Shiling, Chen Chenfu, Zhang Juhe, Zhang Chensheng, Yu Hefang, Song Juhui, Yu Xiaoman, Zhang Huizhen, Zhang Tianzi, 王杰李伯荣张玉明林文雄蔡劲松林春雄蔡运玉
赵林平、赵海丽、董怡平、于兆丽、吴淑玲、王宝林、张玉颖、廖雅慧、黄丽、郭珠娇、李应言、张雪汉、刘慧恩、李瑜、陈雪蕊、李兰、陈邦美、尤文琼、周秀美。贺街平。